As, as we've been in the last couple of weeks, we've started this new series in Romans, and I'm, con- I'm excited to continue this series. We're only in the third week of this 90-week series um, in Romans. Brent's like, what, 90? That's my guess. Uh, that's just my guess. It's going to take us 90 weeks to get through Romans. I'm not really joking. So um, I think, I think it, Romans is a deep, deep book. He's smiling back there. It's like, all right. So, and, 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 and rightly, it should take us a while to get through it because Romans is, is, sound, is deep in sound doctrine and right theology, and it proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is going to take a bit to walk through it as we should. So the three words uh, last week that should have stuck out to you, does anybody remember the three words that Brent repeated over and over? One person was listening. Okay. <laughs> Grace changes everything. You're going to hear those a few more times this morning because it kind of intertwines and runs through, uh, well, Romans really, but especially our chapter and our verses this morning. So yeah, it's true that grace does change everything. And once we receive the grace of Jesus Christ and we're saved from our sin and it makes our eternal destination change, truly, that grace does change everything. And this morning, as we look at chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, we will look at some of those characteristics, the characteristics that should be evident uh, in the one who has received the grace of Jesus Christ. So at first, I was thinking about titling this sermon like uh, the pastor's heart or the characteristics of the pastor's heart, because Paul very much reminds me of a shepherd as he deeply cares for people. You could just see that come from these verses, but I think it could go broader than that. So I was thinking maybe the characteristics of the Christian heart, of maybe the true Christian's heart to get really deep there, but there's just something that sounds kind of preachy or Christianese about those titles. So I just thought maybe should we call it stuff Christians should do? So let's just call it Things Christians Should Do. So the title of this, if you're writing notes, these are Things Christians Should Do, and they come right from our text this morning. So we're going to read Romans chapter 1, and go ahead and open your Bibles. It'll be on the screen too, but you should have your Bible, Um, minor rebuke. Um, So Romans chapter 1, I'll be reading from the ESV, uh, as I usually do, so if you have a different translation, it'll be fine. We will struggle together. So Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. I know you're going to want to go to 15. Maybe I'll just read it too, because why not? Okay, so chapter 1, verses 8. For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And I'm just going to read it. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. All right. I just love Paul. I love Paul. In the first seven verses, 
he, it's basically one sentence. So the first seven verses that we've read last week, it's basically one sentence there. And he lays out some very key points in those, in those verses. It's like the Cliff Notes version, really, to the redemptive plan when it comes to Jesus. So Brent opened, has spent the last couple of weeks talking, telling you about the messenger, Paul, the author of Romans by inspiration of the Spirit, and the message, the good news, the gospel, and that grace changes everything. That's the gospel of grace. And so the first seven verses are a treasure chest. They really are. They're foundational. They're doctrinally and theologically foundational. They run very deep. Therefore, to me, it's almost comical that verse 8 starts with the word first, as if like he hasn't said anything already. It's like, no, you've said a lot. What do you mean first? You've already given us a whole lot. Really, it's really good stuff, Paul, and why are you now saying first? Interestingly enough, Paul never gets to a second. <laughs> Usually when you say something first, it means that there's going to be like a list that goes on. There's going to be something that's second. No, there isn't. Um, and the commentaries kind of point to like, you know, they say things like, well, Romans was, uh, was written through dictation to a secretary as Paul was talking it. So, and someone was writing it down. So, you know, maybe you don't always catch all the grammatical goofs. Okay. And when, when you're just speaking it, sometimes you forget that you said first. And so, because you have so many thoughts in your mind and you're, as he's under inspiration of the spirit, maybe he's like, man, I just can't speak fast enough. I need to get this out. And I don't disagree with either of those. Uh, but I think at the most basic level, he says first and never gets to a second because everything in Romans is of first importance. After all, it's about faith and salvation. It's about glorifying Jesus Christ by edifying fellow believers, teaching right doctrine. These are first important things. That being said, what is Paul really telling us in these verses in our text this morning? So I'll narrow it down to five points. And remember, these are five things. These five things are all under this umbrella. What's the umbrella? Things Christians should do. Things Christians should do. So it's be thankful, serve, long to be together, encourage, be obligated. And we'll flush those out as we go. So the first thing Paul mentions is his thankfulness. His thankfulness. And I don't want us to skip over this all-important word that's there that we might just skip over at times. Paul says, my, right before the word God. <laughs> you might be thinking, you're making this too big. No, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Notice what this means. There's a personal, deep, intimate relationship with God. The God of the universe. He has this relationship with him. God's not some impersonal force that can't be known. He's not all terrifying with no grace. The Jews of the day would not have referred to God in this personal sense, my God. Paul, to Paul, God was not some theological construct, but his beloved Savior and friend. This is absolutely amazing, church. Don't miss that. Through Jesus Christ, the God of the universe is knowable. Through Jesus Christ, the relationship between God and man is repairable. It's not just a cold transaction as if God says, okay, I see Jesus, you're forgiven, I'm walking away. That's not what it is. He forgives sin, yes, but he also desires relationship. It's a closeness that God, uh, it's a closeness with God really that could only be dreamed of. 
But just with this statement, I think my God through Jesus Christ just gives us a glimpse into what the gospel does. It produces a relationship where you can call God your God, your Father. And he thanks God through Jesus Christ, which makes sense. Jesus Christ is the one eternal mediator between God and man. This reminds me of one of my favorite verses, and I get asked that sometimes, what's your favorite verse? And this is one that always just kind of comes out, John 14, 6. You know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus speaks that verse. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, if you want to know the Father, you have to know me. Later on in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. So Paul here is pointing out the obvious in a subtle sort of way, maybe, that the reason he can thank his God, my God, as he says that, is because of the work of Jesus Christ. Look at the beautiful passage in Hebrews 4, 16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We can not only draw near to God, but we can do it with confidence. We can do it with confidence, and we can draw near to the throne of grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. God is our personal God. He is the God who saves. He's the God we can know, the God of grace. And to borrow the line that we heard last week, that grace changes everything. And that is something that we should all be thankful for. So that's kind of just a little introduction to the, that's, kind of, that's the how he gives thanks. But what is the aim of his thanksgiving? What is he really thankful for here? He's thankful for the faith of the Roman Christians that is being proclaimed all over the world. So Paul was thankful for the faith that his brothers and sisters in Rome had. And this faith is given by grace from God. This is why Paul just didn't thank the Romans for their faith. He thanked God for the faith that he has placed in the Roman church because this faith that they have is not of themselves, it's a gift by grace. So these believers in Rome had such a strong testimony, though, they they became known everywhere. It's the kind of faith that Paul's referring to. It's not not just the initial trust in Christ that he's referring to, It's, it's this lasting kind of faith that perseveres, that grows They're being sanctified. There's a spiritual strength there. And it's being proclaimed. It's being seen. It's being noticed. It's faith that's in action. It's a faith that obeys. To piggyback on a quote from Brent last week, he quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm just going to paraphrase. He basically in that quote said, true belief results in obedience. And obedience results in belief, in faith. And Paul was thankful for the belief that was being lived out because it was positively proclaimed in the world. It's worth noting that this wasn't a church that Paul started. This wasn't his church, so to speak. And it's not like he was saying, I'm thankful for what you got going there because the things I started are really working. It's not what he could say. Paul never even met these believers yet. Nevertheless, he was thankful for their faith, and we too, I think, can glean from this that we should be thankful for faith in church, in our churches. Some churches are famous for how many people they get crammed through the doors. Some churches are famous for the publicity stunts. 
Some churches are famous from their beautiful architecture, their stained glass windows. Places like Bethel Hill Song Elevation are famous for how many songs they can put on the radio instead of being concerned with biblical preaching that results in a faith worth proclaiming. Some churches are famous in how well they adapt to the evil demands of culture. The church in Rome was known for its faith, and that's something to be known for. The bottom line here is Paul is thankful for what God has done in his life and what God is doing in other faithful believers' lives. And for the advancement of God's kingdom throughout the world, Paul sees that. He's thankful for that. And church, this is something we should be thankful for. And I'm sure there were some bummer things going on. I'm sure it wasn't all great. In fact, we know it's not all great. Paul's not, or Rome's not really a safe place for Paul to go, even though he's longing to go there. But Paul is looking through a proper perspective as he sees God's kingdom work at hand. And sometimes it's our perspective that just needs to be changed a little bit. I read a story this week about a guy who came into his counselor and he said, I just can't handle it anymore. I'm living with 10 people in my house. Some are my family. Some are my extended family. It's crazy. I can't do it. I can't live with them anymore. Something's got to change. The counselor said, hey, do you still have your goat? Yes, I still have my goat. He goes, hey, let the goat in the house. Okay, confused, he goes away. And after a couple weeks, guy comes back and guy's coming back and says, I just can't stand this goat in the house. This goat is, is destroying things, doing everything. He goes, okay, get the goat out of the house. Take the goat out. Okay, takes the goat out of the house. Comes back a couple weeks later. How's it going? It's great, the goat is gone. The nine people are still there right? The 10 people are still there. So it's the perspective, you know, it's that perspective that sometimes needs to be changed. And in the church in Rome, as Paul is thankful, there could be a lot of other things that are kind of a bummer going on around. But Paul sees the big thing. The perspective is there on God's kingdom and what's happening. And I've been part of this church family for, it's hard to believe, 24 years now. And and I would say that God has given us this amazing gift of faith as a church. Are we a perfect church? Nope. If you find one of those, let me know. It would be great to attend one one time. Um, and then I'd show up and it wouldn't be perfect anymore. Um, and if you, <laughs> and if, if you're, if, but are we, if we're not a perfect church, but we're a faithful church. Are we a faithful church? Yeah, I'd say we're faithful to God. We're faithful to the gospel. We've been blessed by preaching for the last three and a half decades from Brent, who has stepped up here week after week, giving us and feeding us the gospel. Between Brent and Masami, there's almost 60 years of, of investment into this church. They're going to think that makes them sound old. And it's fine, because there's, faithful, there's faithfulness there. And I'm thankful for the ones who started the church. I'm thankful for the ones that had a vision for this church. There's faith that's there. I'm thankful for that. We should be thankful for the faith that God has given our second, point, our second point this morning is serve. In thinking about things that Christians should do, serving should be on the list, and it's in our text this morning. It says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul is thankful for the work that's been done, in the faith that's in the Romans church, but he's all, and he's thankful for that faith, but he also sees a need to keep serving, to keep going, to keep preaching, to keep sharing the news of the gospel. 
It's worth noting that this word serve here is almost synonymous with worship. Serve and worship. You know, we can get kind of mixed up a little bit sometimes in our mind. I thought this for years. Uh, you know, something like working in, you know, we could be like something working in children's ministry or being a door greeter, um, and that's serving, but worship is singing. So I can serve here, and worship is just singing. We tend to pigeonhole this word worship into something that's just musical, and it's a corporate worship that we do here. But that's just one aspect of worship. When you hand out a bulletin or teach a children's class or lead a Bible study or pack a shoebox at Christmas time, whatever, the list could go on. That's also worship. If you are serving God with unreserved commitment and giving everything you have, then that's worship. So service and worship really go hand in hand. In fact, in chapter 12 of this book, Romans, uh, it begins with these words. I'm going to be using NAS here. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable, God, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Service and worship. God is not interested in the sacrifices of dead animals any longer. He's interested in his people worshiping him. He's interested in people serving him. So the only acceptable worship is to offer yourself completely to the Lord. One pastor said it this way, The greatest worship a believer can offer to God is devoted, pure, heartfelt ministry. It goes back to what our heart longs for, what we desire. If we desire to give everything to God, then it's worship. And this is certainly the example Paul gives us as he served God with everything he had. It was a deep desire to see the gospel of Jesus spread. And of course, this means uh, he, he wanted to use the gifts that he was given, the gift to preach and proclaim the good news, the good news of God's Son. And at the end of verse 9 and into verse 10, he lets his readers know he consistently is praying for them. He's, he's saying, as God is my witness, I pray for you all the time. In fact, he uses the word without ceasing. As we already covered, Paul was certainly thankful for the faith that was there in the Roman believers. But he also knew apart from God's continuing grace in their lives, their faith could be weakened. And so he lifted them up in prayer. And this is one way Paul could serve and worship God, even though Paul didn't write out exactly what he was praying here for them, in the, for the Romans. Uh, he prayed a lot. And we can get maybe a glimpse of how he prayed because of what he wrote in other books to how he prayed for people. So let's just look and get a glimpse here in Ephesians. And turn to Ephesians 3. And it's going to be 14 through 19. And it says, For this, this is Paul in Ephesians saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you, be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I'm just going to keep reading because it's so good. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power of his work within us, 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is how Paul prayed. Paul prayed that they'd be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and that Christ would dwell in their hearts, that they'd be filled with God's own love. They would be filled with the fullness of God. What a prayer. This is, this is a characteristics of Paul's prayer. By the way, just as a side note, if you ever wonder how you could pray for the elders, this is a really good template. Just go ahead and pray that we, it would be much appreciated. <laughs> Again, this is not the prayer that was stated in Romans, but this is how Paul prayed. He prayed for their spiritual well-being. But he doesn't just stop there. He's, he goes on, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. Paul has not been able to go see them yet. He wants to, so he's asking by somehow, by God's will, he'd be able to succeed in coming to them. There's something sort of profound here, maybe a little bit buried, but it'll come out in the context of these verses, I think. No doubt Paul has served these people by praying for them, but he also desires to come to them. Now, it's one thing to pray for something to happen. It's another thing to offer yourself as a solution to the thing that you're praying for. I mean, it's pretty easy to sit back and armchair quarterback things, right, and criticize and, and offer suggestions on and, and how something should be done, but it's far different to be willing to jump in and offer yourself as part of the solution. And even in our prayer life, we must be careful, church. We, we, we oftentimes pray that others would be used for kingdom purposes, for others to be used for the gospel to go forward, for others to be used in converting our neighbor. I think what Paul gives here is an underlying principle that in order to serve, we must be willing to be the one that God uses. Don't miss that. In order to serve, we must be willing to be one of the ones that God uses. Sure, we can pray that God would use others, and we should be praying that God would use us but we should also be praying that God would use us to our full capacity. So if we're talking about things Christians should do, we should serve, which is worship, as we devote ourselves completely to God in all that we do. And we should pray not only for God to use others to do amazing things, but for ourselves to be used of God as well. Some might be saying, well, just because Paul wants to visit Rome doesn't mean he necessarily wants to be used. That's kind of a stretch. Well, the way this is structured, it's sort of all intertwined, and I think it'll become more clear as we move on to our third point. Okay, so remember, we're looking at things Christians should do, and, and so far we've covered be thankful and serve. The next thing we see in our passage this morning is a longing to be together. This is seen in verses 10, 11, and 13. We'll get to verse 12 in a minute. It has its own little nugget of wisdom that I want to pull from that, and we will. So Paul is longing to be together from his fellow believers in Rome praying that God will allow him success in coming. He says, for I long to see you. Don't be unaware of this. I intend to come to you. I want to be there. Three times, very clearly in these verses, he's making it clear, I want to be there. I want to be with you. Remember, this isn't a church that Paul planted. He's writing to Romans as somewhat of an outsider, somewhat of a stranger, humanly speaking. The fact that he had such a tender heart, though, praying for them and longing to see them is evidenced by unity in Christ. And that's a powerful thing. I know I've mentioned this before, so I'll just briefly mention it again. 
in 2017, when I took a, a trip to India, like we're getting ready to send uh, a team out on now, the, one of the remarkable things I experienced, there were many, one of the remarkable things I experienced was the unity I had never felt before. I felt unity with my fellow believers here in this church and our church community and our family. That, that's been felt. But I walked into a cafe where we were holding the worship service that morning, and to people I didn't know, and people that spoke a different language, I was a, at least a foot taller than everybody. Um, I didn't look like them. We didn't, we didn't have the same culture. We were completely on the other side of the world. Like, humanly speaking, there was like nothing, like, there was almost nothing in common. <laughs> but there was this weird sort of unexplainable unity I felt with these people. And it was a weird feeling at first. And then it kind of dawned on me, like, this is the unity that the Holy Spirit dwelling in us brings. There's a there's a familial thing. There's a family thing here because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united through Jesus and our faith. So church, understand when Christ is the common denominator, then unity and longing, uh, uh, then unity and a longing to be together should be the automatic outcome. Let me say that again. When Christ is the common denominator, then unity and a longing to be together should be the automatic outcome. So Paul is attached to these Roman believers because of their unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he says something interesting. At least one of the reasons why he wants to go to them is that he may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. I've already mentioned that we saw Paul was not only willing to pray and serve and be part of the solution of what he was praying for. Now we get a little glimpse even more to his motivation. He didn't want to go to Rome to be a tourist. He wanted to go to Rome to give of himself. And it wasn't some self-centered motivation Paul had. Paul's heart and intention were set on the spiritual well-being of the Roman believers. He wanted to give them something spiritual. Wanted to give them something worthwhile. And this may seem a little confusing as we think uh, you know, about gifts and whatnot. And, and he wasn't talking here about the free gift of salvation through Christ because he's already speaking to believers. They've got that. He couldn't be talking about the spiritual gifts that are given only by the Holy Spirit. He couldn't give those even if he wanted to. So the term spiritual gifts here means a more general sense of anything that builds up one's spiritual life, anything that could potentially strengthen the Romans' faith. Paul wants to bring them spiritual benefits, potentially through his preaching and teaching and exhorting, maybe praying. Whatever it was the apostle had in mind, it wasn't superficial He wasn't interested in tickling their ears. He wanted their faith to be strengthened and for them to be further established. And he knew that God had given him gifts that could be used for the good of building up these in Rome, so he wanted to be used, and he longed to use his gifts for the purpose of strengthening their faith in God's kingdom. Not only this, he had also a desire to reap some harvest at the end of verse 13. Other translations say, obtain some fruit among the believers and the Gentiles. The kind of fruit Paul was looking for was not only to strengthen the Roman believers and help them mature in their faith, but he was also looking for new converts. No matter the faith of a church in any given area, there's always unsaved people in and around it. So he's looking for new converts as well, the fruit. This is why it's not a stretch to say that Paul offered himself as part of the answer to the prayers he was praying. Put me in the game. Here I am, Lord, send me, is the idea that we get from Paul here. Remember, it's one thing to pray for something. 
It's another thing to ask God to make you part of the answer. This is clearly what Paul was doing. And this is something we should do, church. We should long to be together. We should long to pray for one another. We should be willing to be part of God's answer to our own prayers, and we should be eager to see fruit in people's lives. And we should be willing to be used to see some come to know Jesus. But even the Apostle Paul knew that he wasn't above learning. He knew that he wasn't above being encouraged. And that leads us to the fourth thing that Christians should do this morning, which is encourage. So Paul wants to bring spiritual blessing to the Roman church. Paul did not think of himself as above his fellow believers, though. Sure, he was a highly gifted man, a great apostle. He had received revealed truth directly from God, but he never thought of himself above being encouraged by other believers. In other words, Paul wasn't planning on riding into Rome on his high horse. I came across an interesting story this week. Some of you may be familiar with it, you history buffs. And it says this, during the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers repairing a small defensive barrier. The leader was shouting instructions, but making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the writer, he retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am a corporal. The stranger apologized, and he dismounted and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job done, he turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. It was none other than George Washington. Apparently, George Washington, even though he was the highest-ranking man in the land, didn't think himself above those doing the hard work. The Apostle Paul, the greatest, who we could argue the greatest theologian who ever lived, behind Jesus, uh, did not think of himself above any other believer. He knew he could offer encouragement to the believers through his faith, but he also knew that he could be encouraged by theirs. And it's safe to say Paul longed for that, to spend time with new believers, the less spiritually mature, because there is a refreshing that comes with that. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. The, the longer you've been a Christian, we kind of get into our little bubbles. And as much as I love sitting around talking about the deep things of God and having debates about theology and all that, sometimes it just gets old. Like, you just, you're just, it's so refreshing to see a brand new one discover their faith. Now, we as Christians even get our own language at times when we pray and we talk about the Bible, the way we ask questions. There's a certain lingo that we've learned over the years. We call it Christianese. But, but the new believer, they don't know any of that. And, and, and they're raw and they're discovering and they're ready to soak up just about anything. I love that. And there's, there's a feeding that happens to me. There's an encouragement to me, and I'm sure you feel the same way. It's encouraging to me because the newness of faith, and I still see the workings of God to make things new. Sometimes I see more there than I, than I have in one who's been a believer for many years. And it's encouraging to me because it's a reminder of how God still changes hearts, sometimes dramatically. You know, I'll just give you a little hint here to everybody. Little, little, little piece of advice uh, of what not to do to a pastor. So don't ever apologize for taking our time because you think you're not important enough. Don't, don't ever think that we're above you because we're not. You know, just the other day I was introduced to somebody by a mutual friend. 
And when that person found out I was a pastor, they started to back away. As if like I was really scary all of a sudden. We've been okay before that. And it started to back away. I was like, yeah, I know I'm bigger, but I'm not too scary, I hope. And, and so they became speechless. And I just say, it's just really odd. And this happens, and you could talk to Brent and Masami, they'll have the same stories. It just happens. People's demeanor and actions and emotions change once they find out there's a pastor near them. It's not us you need to be concerned with. <laughs> it's your standing with Jesus that you need to be concerned with. At the same time, I'm not above you. I can, only be, I can be encouraged by you just as much as hopefully I can encourage you. Or sometimes this happens, people call the pastors and ask us to pray, but they don't call anybody else. And there's sometimes where there's sensitive topics and that's appropriate, but sometimes people do it just because they think pastors like have a special phone line to God. We don't. I wish I did. We have the same number of bars you do. The service is the same. Can you hear me? So yeah, there, there's, no, there's no special phone line. Kind of like when you go to, sometimes you go to a dealer to buy a car and they're like, oh, we need to call the DMV. And you're like, man, better call my wife. I'm not going to be home for dinner tomorrow. You know, and so it's like, because you're waiting on the DMV, right? It's like, no, they have a special phone line and, so, and they call and someone actually answers. But that's just not how it works with pastors. We are all indwelled with the same Holy Spirit and have the same access to God because Jesus tore the curtain that separated us from him. And now we have all access to that throne of grace by faith in Jesus. There is no hierarchy there. And Paul understood this. The great apostle Paul understood this with the simple words of being mutually encouraged. He longed to be with them because he knew he could benefit from them and, and benefit them as well. Commenting on this, John Calvin said, Note how modestly he, meaning Paul, Express what he feels by not refusing to seek strengthening from experienced, inexperienced beginners. He means what he says, too. For there is none so void of the gifts in the church of Christ who cannot in some measure contribute to the spiritual progress. Ill will and pride, however, prevent our deriving such benefit from one another. I love that. There is none so void of the gifts in the church that you cannot in some measure contribute to the spiritual progress progress. Why? Because every single one of you has a gift. Because when God enters in, things change. And he works in amazing ways. And when we experience his grace, that truly does change everything. So all of us should be looking for ways to encourage one another, to build each other up, to strengthen one another. It's something that Christians should do. This leads to our fifth and final point this morning from our text, which we could begin with the question, why? Why are these things all that, why, why, why are these things, why should Christians do these things? Why should we be thankful and serve and long to be together and encourage? Why? Well, because we're obligated. Verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So now we may not like the word obligated as it can give us the idea of like it's something forced, something forced against our will or something forced against Paul's will. But humanly speaking, if we think about Paul for a minute, um, before Jesus converted Paul in Acts 9, he was doing everything but promoting the gospel. He was, in, in his humanity, he was doing everything he could to destroy the gospel and those who believed in it. So Paul understands that he was set apart for this work long before he had the desire to do it. 
It's almost like he's saying to the Romans, don't thank me for wanting to come to you and minister. Yes, I love you guys and want to visit you, but it was God who selected me to do this long before I knew about it. Because when Jesus stepped into Paul's life, everything changed. He went from killing Christians to serving Jesus with all that he had. He went from trying to put an end to the church to saying, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm going to say it again. Grace changes everything. And when it comes to the things that Christians should do, it's the grace of God that gives us the ability to accomplish them. It was God's grace that saved Paul, and it's by God's grace that Paul was a great apostle. Furthermore, Paul, it says, was appointed to the, the, the apostle of the Gentiles, so he felt a unique obligation to them. But if we think about it, if we think about it this way in our own lives, are we obligated like Paul? Well, we're not called as apostles, but we are called to do things for God. For example, let's just say one evening you're walking in your neighborhood, and you're going past your neighbor's house, and, and you notice there's a fire in their kitchen. But everybody else is watching TV in the living room on the other side of the house, completely oblivious to what's happening. Would you not go to that door, go to their windows running and shouting and knocking? Would you not feel obligated to, keep, to, to, to step in and, and do something because serious injury or potential death could happen? I think we would. Would you feel obligated to let those people know, hey, your house is on fire, get out. Or maybe another example, you're at a swimming pool and you're witnessing a child starting to drown. Would you not feel obligated to jump in and do all you could to try to save the child? Or get somebody that you knew physically could at least, do all you can? You would feel obligated. In those two instances, we would do all we would do, all we could do to save those people. I hope. <laughs> Church, we must understand the obligation to unbelievers that are around us they are facing a spiritual death, not just a physical one by fire or water. It's worse than fire or drowning. Paul felt that obligation. He felt that obligation to the unbelieving Jews and the Gentiles, and he wanted to rescue them, not with a fire extinguisher, not with a life preserver, but with the gospel. And when it comes to things that Christians should do, we too should feel this obligation, this tug. We want to rescue as many people we can through the gospel understanding at the same time that it's only through the power of God and his gospel that anyone can be saved. But he might just use you to deliver that message. That's the obligation of every believer. And we are not to be partial. <laughs> We're not to be partial here to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Those are two opposite ends of people groups, like here and here. The Greeks were thought of as the highly sophisticated and educated, and, and, whereas the term barbarians, on the other hand, represented the foolish and lowly. Kind of a little neat history lesson. In fact, the word barbarian is derived from the fact that the educated Greek thought that all other languages sounded so much like gibberish, they mocked it and mimicked it and saying, bar, bar, bar. That's all they ever say. Hence, it's now known as barbarian. I'm not making that up. That's just a detailed way to say that the gospel doesn't know partiality. The gospel is not just some sort, is not just for some and not others. The gospel is the great equalizer. If you're human, it's for you. And I don't want to steal too much from Brent next week as he covers 15, but I just have to mention it. Paul's desire as he goes is to preach the gospel in Rome. 
Rome was not really a safe place for Paul, but he was under obligation to preach the message, the message that all people need. You might say, what message? Glad you asked. The message that God created the world and everything in it, and he put man and woman in a garden to rule over it and to keep it. But man and woman chose to disobey God, therefore separating that relationship. And it shattered every possibility of this relationship ever happening. And it put us on a one-way ticket, humanity. It put humanity on a one-way ticket to hell and separation from God. And there's nothing we could do to get off that bus that's leading us there. But God was not content to leave us on that bus. He sends his son Jesus, who is perfect who lives a perfect life, who dies a death that he didn't deserve by the hands of those he came to save, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rises, proving that he has the power over death. And because of that, we can be saved. We can be saved and repaired in this relationship between God and man. And while Jesus was here, he modeled perfectly how we should live. And, and because of what he has done now, we can not only be saved and repair that relationship, but we're a new creation, a new creation that, that, that goes on, that, that enters into this restored relationship. He takes us off that bus and enters us into a new eternal destination. And he rescues us to an eternity in heaven. This is our only hope. There is no other way. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, according to Scripture, all to the glory of God. And it's because of this truth we should naturally be thankful. We should naturally want to serve and long to be together and encourage one another and feel obligated to share the gospel with those that are lost and destined for hell. The gospel is the greatest news ever. So these things that we can do, being thankful, serving, longing to be together, encouraging, and being obligated to that are just a few ways we live that gospel out in us. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I'm so thankful for your word, and I'm thankful that uh, you, gave us, uh, <laughs> you gave us your word through the Apostle Paul here that we can look at it, that we can understand uh, more what... Uh, we should, we should strive and just naturally want to do after we've received the grace that you've given. Lord, I pray that, 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 that uh, those three words that we've been talking about, that grace changes everything, really, uh, really, really impacts us, Lord, that we understand that it's by grace we can do anything. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so I pray that you would, uh, by your grace and by your, by your spirit and your strength, empower us to to be bold, to be courageous, to, to speak of you, to live in ways that, that reflect the gospel change, the change, the, the, the change that grace has made in us. May we just be reflections of that to the world around us. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that has yet to experience that grace, that change that you offer from an, from an old to a new creation, God, I pray that you would work in the heart of each and every one who is here that has not received that grace yet, that you would turn them to you, that they would repent and understand that they need you as Savior, that they would cry out, I can't do it, I need you. So Lord, would you do that amazing work? In Jesus' name, amen.